everybody, David Sullivan again, and welcome to the seventh installment of our UH Ventures Health Voyages podcast series. We're going to break the mold. We've uh, we've had podcasts now with you for a while. You've heard uh, you've heard six of them already. Our guest today is Professor Michael Goldberg, Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve's Weatherhead School of Business. Michael is an experienced venture capitalist, an international business leader, amongst many other things. And his teaching is focused on the fields of entrepreneurship and early stage finance. Hey, Michael. David, great to be here as part of this mold-breaking podcast. Exactly. Not the first time you've broken eggs, Michael. So tell us about yourself. Uh, What's going on? Well, I I would speak in in a good fake South African accent like yours, um, but I'll I'll use my Cleveland accent. I did have the privilege of living in your, your home country uh, of South Africa for three years early in my career, working on a, an election. Pretty volatile period, right? Voter education project, it was, before coming back to the U.S. Um, and switching gears, got an MBA and then um, got into technology working at AOL, America Online. Perhaps some of your listeners used our service, those over the age of I think they're all too young, 40 Michael. or 50. Um, a lot of our students here at Case have never heard of AOL or, or used dial-up. dial-up internet. But uh, I worked there for five years doing international business development. Um, and then I moved back to the region, Cleveland. So this is my hometown. And actually, Jeff Ponsky, who's a former um, chief of surgery at University Hospitals, um, was working with an Israeli company called Symbionics that was doing um, simulation for minimally invasive surgery and came to Cleveland to work with Jeff. And um, that led to me putting together a small venture capital fund with a partner in Israel focused on early stage Israeli medical device companies that had strong synergies with the region, had the chance to collaborate with quite a few um, uh, clinicians from University Hospitals and the Cleveland Clinic around Of course, you that. know, uh, Lee is uh, now chair of uh, urology at uh, UH. Uh, I do, the, cousin uh, Lee Ponsky. Um, right. So I'm well, I'm well covered in all my surgical needs, if I should I need them with my cousins. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, I'm here at now at Case Western Reserve University in um, Sears Thinkbox up on the sixth floor. We have a, a new entrepreneurship suite. I encourage all your listeners, whether you're in the Cleveland area or anywhere in the world, come visit us at Thinkbox. It's an open makerspace. It's actually open to the community. And whether you want to 3D print or woodcut or just hang out with startups on the sixth floor. So it's great to have you guys here and fun to be part of the podcast. Great. That's, uh, that's excellent. You know, one of the themes when it comes to our podcast series and the way in which we try to influence the culture at UH and in our you know, ecosystem surrounds is the notion of demystification. For a long while, as 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 you can attest and as you teach, the there was mysteries sh- shrouding the whole venture capital conversation. I know you feel pretty strongly about the notion of simplifying it, of making it more accessible. Um, tell us how this notion of the Brad Felds and a lot of what's been written and a lot of what's uh, attainable and accessible in the marketplace has changed the nature of venture capital? It's a great question, David. Um, The way that we teach entrepreneurship and the tools at our disposal um, have really evolved. Um, And Brad Feld, as you mentioned, who's a venture capitalist with the Foundry Group, actually put up a blog many years ago, really focused on kind of the mechanisms of a term sheet. Um, It used to be when you were an early stage entrepreneur or venture capitalist, you'd have to spend a lot of money on legal fees to put together term sheets and and structures. And um, it was very difficult, I think, for entrepreneurs and investors to really understand some of those dynamics. I think 
with credit to Brad and a number of other people that put this information up on the web, um, folks like Y Combinator, which is the leading accelerator based out on the West Coast, which has come up with a simplified safe agreement, notes. safe notes, simplified agreement for equity, um, that there's this feeling that um, entrepreneurs and investors are sort of in need of much simpler transaction documents um, so that they can sort of get on with, I mean, due diligence is a difficult challenge for um, for investors and, and, and frankly, good investors are only gonna still invest in a small number of deals. But I think that this additional transparency and sort of ethos among entrepreneurs to kind of share experiences has led to a much better environment, I think, for entrepreneurs and investors to kind of understand what it means to raise early stage capital. So we use Venture Deals, which is written by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson in our entrepreneurial finance class. And uh, I just feel like there's, there's more tools and information out there than ever, including things like podcasts, um, the startup podcast, which I use in my class. And I highly recommend because they, they capture some amazing moments between founder, actually and co-founders as a negotiation between Alex Bloomberg, who's the founder of Gimlet Media, and, and a guy named Matt Lieber, who you brought in as his co-founder, and they taped this, um, the negotiation. The, um, Included people like Chris Saka and yeah, other Chris Saka's investor, in the space. And Chris Saka like, rips Alex a new one when he's like trying to give his pitch. But they just sold the company to Spotify for over $200 million. And in classic sort of awesome podcasting fashion, they then they have three episodes that they just released, including interviews from the folks at Spotify about making that acquisition. So there's such a great array of tools out there, including books. And po there's some amazing podcasts, including the books that start up. You talk about books. A lot of people believe that uh, the lean startup is lore when it comes to this, uh, this space. We're talking a little bit about templatizing some of the, uh, the negotiating environment and the deal-making environment. So those bars are coming down. It would appear to become easier for, for startups to tap into the space. And yet, the, the incidence of success in early stage is still, still pretty meager. Um, as much as we can make things easy, there are still a very finite number of these companies that, uh, that are successful. So what's attracting all of these people to throw their hat into the, the riskiest of rings? Well, luckily, there's a lot of crazy people. I mean, frankly, when you look at the statistics about success and the ability to raise capital, like it should scare everybody off. I mean, most startups are not going to make it. Most startups are not going to get funded. So why would you leave your good day job to do that? And, you know, I know your your listener base probably has more of an interest in healthcare startups. I mean, the regulatory environment uh, around healthcare startups, not so much healthcare IT, although there are there are regulatory hurdles, but medical device um, startups, which in the Cleveland area, there's been a lot of, I mean, this, this is a tough road to hoe. Um, you know, you mentioned as part of the question about lean startup and, and getting out of the office and testing assumptions and testing hypotheses. And it is interesting, actually, whether it's accelerators in Cleveland or other parts of the world, like you walk in and you see business model canvas. And so I think people really have gotten, um, and through programs like i um, in the U.S., which actually works with university mm. um, researchers and in the state of Ohio, and I know folks in the, in the UH network have gone through right. that process as well. And it really helps researchers who are not used to like talking to customers 
to get out and get real feedback and evidence around their assumptions. I think one of the particular challenges in the healthcare space, and I see it whether it's with students or entrepreneurs, is oftentimes like if you're trying to get information from a potential customer, if I'm calling a physician, um, they're busy, and you know they, and, and even if you're trying to, whether you're getting due diligence as an investor or you're an entrepreneur really trying to find product market fit, it's like, it's very, people in healthcare are very, very busy and doing that work. I mean, a lot of times we'll see student entrepreneurs here where they're trying to sell into a student market. You can just go into the student center and interview a bunch of students and like, so that can be customer discovery. I think in healthcare, there's additional challenges depending on who you're trying to get to. So. You know, I have deep admiration for entrepreneurs that decide to do this. It is, it has always been hard, and I think it remains hard, even with, you know, capital formation, arguably kind of being at its highest point. I mean, there's a lot of money out there, even in places like Cleveland. There's access to capital, but it is, it is really hard. So, access to capital and healthcare. Let's stick on those two topics for a second. It's still a highly coastally concentrated uh, environment and activity base. The money seems to be primarily out west, but we'll throw Boston into the mix, of course, as well. What's going to change the environment to uh, attract and enable startups to um, blossom anywhere other than the coasts? And is it a function of capital access? Is it a function of talent access? Is it a pipeline issue? Why do you think there's still this disproportional concentration? Well, I think kind of throughout time, investors feel most comfortable investing in entrepreneurs within a driving distance, right? So um, depending on the philosophy behind the investor, if it's a venture capital fund or even an, a hands-on angel, they want to be close to them. And, you know, what has happened in Silicon Valley has been um, a lot of success, obviously a lot of failures as well, but um, with success, folks starting new companies and talent moving to the region and money is out there. So the the pools of capital are disproportionately on the coast and disproportionately in San Francisco. Um, there have been efforts and, you know, we obviously are all sort of sitting here in Cleveland and we've seen um, with the work that we do, the work you're doing at UH Ventures, the work that I've done with my venture capital fund, you know, an ecosystem evolved. The ecosystem has evolved on the backs of not just private funding, but also um, uh, government funding. So through the Ohio Third Frontier Program, um, which is a $2.3 billion um, program focused on commercialization and entrepreneurship. And sort of through that, things like the North Coast Angel Fund, which is an angel, dedicated angel fund, which actually taps into both um, government and philanthropy to sort of subsidize and sort of make it more attractive for local angels to invest. In places like California, you don't need to subsidize the participation of angels to invest in startups. It's happening quite naturally. Uh, on the venture capital side, uh, my own fund has money from something called the Ohio Capital Fund. This is a $150 million fund of funds started by um, the, the state of Ohio government with the premise that um, there wasn't enough venture capital in the region and through an Ohio fund, that would incentivize new managers and, and venture capital funds setting up offices here. Um, I think that program made a lot of sense, not just because I received capital from it, but you began to see look, venture funds set up offices here. And then because they were here and because of the requirements of that capital deploying in, in local um, startups, that program has not been continued. Um, 
under the previous administration. And I think you see a lot of experimentation. I think one of the things, and it, it, whether it be Ohio or sort of other states outside of the Valley, um, you have to be a little bit more creative to sort of juice the ecosystem. Um, I think certainly, David, you and I are very familiar on the, on the NGO side of things, Jumpstart, which is a venture development organization here in Cleveland that actually started at Case Western Reserve. It started as a small fund, and, and now they do a number of things um, in the organization, including invest. So they've deployed over $30 million in over 100 companies. They have multiple funds now. Um, one of the really critical pieces that I, I, I think you would agree with is showing success. So Cover My Meds, which sold for over a billion dollars in 2017, basically returned by two their entire fund. So, you know, the question that you ask around how do we sort of get capital here and get it to stay here, investors need to make money and founders need to make money. And I think we're starting to see with Explorus and, and Cover My Meds and Toa Technologies, which is then on the healthcare side, like we're starting to have a couple successes. So people are making money, founders are making money, and then they're doing their next thing. So, um, but this is a long journey. I mean, we've been kind of subsidizing this work in the region through government and philanthropy since kind of 2002, 2003, you know, it's 2019 now. So it's taking some time. Is that part of the problem? The fact that there's this continually, um, this, this uh, bottomless pit of potential subsidy and support in a non-dilutive sense, does that, inhibits perhaps the willingness of people to take real risks because they know that there is um, unfettered money available through some of these sources? That's a great question. I mean, I think when you set up this um, scaffolding um, of support for startups, the question is like, when can you take it down? Right. Um, I know in the, I, have, I teach an online class um, called Beyond Silicon Valley, which I know you're familiar with, which kind of looks at the Cleveland case study and one of the people that's featured in the course is a guy named Anthony Hughes who used to run Jumpstart's mentoring program. And he describes it as like an artificial reef. So we, which I think is a good description. So we, you know, we didn't have a real thriving reef. So we did all these things to kind of support it. But like, when can you start to well, remove when, some of these when pieces? When does the coral the, Right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. so. But it strikes me that Columbus and certainly we know Pittsburgh and maybe to some extent even Cincinnati, there are cities that look and feel and kind of sound just like us, but they appear to be ahead of the game. What is systemically wrong here? Maybe wrong is too hard of a descriptor, but why isn't Cleveland a leader, given that the critical mass seems to be here in terms of private wealth concentration, in terms of the institutions, in terms of the corporations? Why isn't it stitched together? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think we bet heavily on a, as a region on medical device as an asset class. I mean, I think it's no secret that that has been a really challenging um, field. I mean, I think healthcare IT, like a Cover My Meds or an Explorus, has seen quicker success, certainly on the exit side. I do think that we have a really strong medical device cadre of companies. It just sort of is taking, and I know this from my own investment experience, I mean, it's just taking a lot longer than we thought. Um, so I think I think we will see some success. It may just be taking longer. I think some of the other things that, you know, perhaps you're alluding to about other communities and how they're collaborating versus our collaboration here, things, are, things seem to just take a little bit more time here. I think, you know, your partnership in things like plug and play and working with 
um, you know, the clinic and Jumpstart and folks together. I mean, it's not always so easy to stitch together partnerships. I think it takes people and, you know, I have, I have a lot of respect for the way the UH Ventures teams thinks about partnering and, and, and looking externally and even working with Case. I mean, you know, frankly, like sitting on our campus and we're trying to do some things right now with a new entrepreneurship center and institute that we have called the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship. You know, how can we be better partners? Because mm-hmm. I think in a lot of other cities, um, the tier one research universities, you know, in our, and, and in Cleveland's case, it's us. It's yep. Case Western Reserve University. It's sort of helped lead the ecosystem. Um, I think we can do a better job. So I think we're, there's a lot of work to do, and I think a lot of it is through partnerships. So we're here on campus. Lots of students have lots of great ideas. They want to go out and pitch these early stage ideas. Give us a couple of kernels of advice. What should they pitch? What should be in this pitch deck? What should they uh, avoid? Yes, we've all seen a lot of uh, bad pitches, haven't yes. we, David? Uh, no, I mean, wonderful, wonderful pitches from students. So, you know, it's, I, I really like to see students give these things a try. Um, we do offer some courses where students have the opportunity to sort of come up with ideas and then put together presentations. Um, it is interesting. I was just with a group of students yesterday. You know, the the days of sort of like putting every word of your presentation up on your slides and then like turning at the screen and just reading them <laughs> probably isn't the best practice. Um, so I think we're and 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 in some ways like we take the lead from our um, friends at accelerators. I mean, we've seen these great pitches where I mean, oftentimes I think one of the challenges is that at like demo days, like people give amazing pitches. Their businesses stink but you know their pitches are great um so i think we we are working with students to kind of help them refine like what is your core value proposition what work have you done to test some of these hypotheses around you know do customers actually want what you're doing um and you know i think giving them experiences whether it's in classes or startup weekends or pitch competitions even if they like ultimately go take a job at a university hospital or the cleveland clinic or key bank or sherwin williams like we're hoping to plant a seed that maybe they go and do this some later point in their career. I mean, we don't have a huge pipeline on campus of people that are dropping out of school like Zuck to go do yep. it right away or even doing it right afterwards. But we hope to kind of plant the seed. And, you know, and, and as you know, well, I mean, corporate innovation. So, you know, working inside a hospital like what you guys are doing or Goodyear or, or Progressive. I mean, there's a growing number of corporations that are looking to do kind of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I think some of these same kind of skills in terms of being able to pitch and find core value propositions, like I think are really useful for these folks as well. Michael, we're gonna, we're gonna close soon, but uh, give us a little bit of a primer on some of the deal terms we should be aware of. Uh, let's assume that one of these pitches actually resonates with an investor, whether that be private on the angel and seed side, or whether that be institutional. From a term sheet perspective, just a couple of the areas that, that the would-be entrepreneur or the near entrepreneur should be cognizant of, aware of, as they get into papering and negotiation. Sure. Um, you know, we refer to the, the Brad Feld, Jason Mendelson Venture Deals book. I mean, the premise of that book is like it's all about economics and control, and there's different terms to kind of move the needle on both sides. You know, in the Shark Tank world, and Shark Tank, I mean, we use Shark Tank in my class. It is a fun way um, to kind of show in a really short amount of time, like the kind of the base of a deal. That is obviously 
you know, entirely focused on valuation, like how much of the company am I getting, you know, for my investment. Um, other terms that matter have to do with preferences, and I think it's it's critical for entrepreneurs um, to understand what preferences mean in preferred stock, because there are different mechanisms that can, through preferences, sort of change really sort of change valuation. And then the other piece is control, so board seats. I mean, um, you know, what what are your investors asking for in terms of control and what kind of mechanisms there? So the, the levers of which to pull around economics and control, um, there, are, there are varied because you could, you could have a, a lower or a higher valuation, but sort of more control mechanisms. You could have a lower valuation with different control mechanisms. So... And, and there's tons of information out there um, for your listeners sort of on these terms. But I think, um, again, there's there's much more um, transparency in this than before. And I feel like there's less, hopefully, like less really like punitive things like um, like full rat, like uh, full ratchet, um, anti-dilution, which can be really sort of punitive on invest on entrepreneurs like you're starting to see some of that stuff go away. All right, so uh, let's end with a, a bit of a plug in terms of some of the things you're doing. Um, your first MOOC, Beyond Silicon Valley, was wildly successful. I've lost count of uh, how many languages it's been translated into and how many people have actually viewed and participated. Is, uh, is there a part two coming? Is sure, well, you know, now, now that you've said that, I have to, like, go do a part two, you know. <laughs> It's a heck of a lot of work to do them. No, it was fun. So I, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I have this movie. It's up on Coursera. It's free. It's um, called Beyond Silicon Valley. Um, we we were in sixteen languages. If you you know, right? If Thank you. If you're interested, uh, I don't know how your Khmer is, but I've heard the Khmer subtitles are quite quite awesome. Um, and we have a book which is available for free if you go to beyondsiliconvalleybook.com. There's a free PDF download of the book. And we have an audio book read by me, which is also <laughs> turns out a lot of work. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes, which my nice editor fixed in the thing. So for your long commute, download the Beyond Silicon Valley book. And um, yeah, I'm just... You know, I'm not sure if the next what the next MOOC is out there, but um, I'm still having a lot of fun, and as you know, doing a lot of travel um, related to the course because that we have found that this Cleveland story, much some of which we talked about today, actually has resonated in parts of the world that we would not have imagined, from your home country of South Africa to Iran to Cambodia. So many folks are kind of struggling with these same issues. So that's been a fun thing to work on and I continue to, to get to travel and engage with people from around the world on, uh, on these topics. Michael, this, is, uh, this has been great. Any time we spend with you is the uh, proverbial masterclass, so we appreciate the time. We look forward to uh, cajoling you back into a, another episode at, uh, at a future date and uh, we'd like to thank you. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you.